0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for having us. We're really excited to be here to talk about childhood lead poisoning. It is our passion. And our three goals for the talk today are, one, to review the most recent research on the effects of lead on the brain, two, to review the Connecticut state screening mandate, and three, to go over the most recent data on the status of lead poisoning in our state. So I'm going to start off by saying that lead poisoning is old news. Everyone in this audience knows lead poisoning is bad, I'm sure, right? I'm sure everyone here knows that lead poisoning is defined as a blood lead level greater than or equal to 5. Lead poisoning has been around in the medical literature actually since the Middle Ages. And about 200 years ago, Benjamin Franklin actually wrote a letter about lead poisoning. This is real. So if we've known about lead poisoning for so long, I'm going to pose a question. Why today, in the United States, are over half a million children poisoned. Half a million children. That's more children than have sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, inflammatory bowel disease, and all types of cancer combined. How did we get here? The answer is, in the United States, is we used lead-based paint for almost 100 years. Now, when lead-based paint was introduced in 1900, it was a revolutionary product. Compared to old types of paint, it held up better and retained its color. Oops. The problem was it contained lead, and lead was a known poison. Now the lead companies were very clear that their paint contained lead. It was called lead paint. They weren't hiding it from anybody. So these are some excerpts from um, some memos and employee handbooks, and you can see that they were very clear about the risk to their employees from working with lead paint. What wasn't so clear to the community at large and even to the lead companies was that living in a home that contained lead paint could result in exposure. Now there were some um, scientists in Europe that looked into the risk, and this is an excerpt from um, a German medical journal that associated living in a lead-painted home with exposure, and this was published in 1904. And as a result of this work and many others like it, lead paint was actually banned in Europe in the early part of the 20th century. Now you can see that the United States is missing from this list, and that's because we only banned lead paint in 1978. And that decision by our government is the reason that I'm still here talking to you about lead poisoning. This graph is from the Connecticut Department of Public Health. We will be referring to a lot of their slides each year. They release a report on lead poisoning in the state. And so what this graph shows us is the etiology of lead poisoning for children who are currently poisoned in Connecticut. And you can see that the vast majority of children in our state were poisoned from the direct exposure to lead paint. Dust refers to lead dust. That's generated when lead paint breaks down. Lead contaminated soil is a direct result of the fact we used to have lead in our gasoline, so car exhaust would settle into our soil. We do have children that are poisoned from lead water, and that's from um, leaching of lead solder into water. It's not from the water source itself. So why didn't the United States ban lead paint in the early part of the 20th century like most of Europe? The answer to that question is that our lead companies really fought back against getting their products removed from shelves, and they did that in a very systematic approach. So first, they presented some alternative facts to the community. Now we had some slides originally that were removed due to copyright issues, but they were slides from the 1920s and 30s that showed lead paint advertisements that said things like, lead safeguards against health. and. Our white paint fights off gloom and disease. And they actually used these advertisements to advertise to schools and hospitals. Secondly, the company spent massive resources on advertising, including advertising to children in order to build a family wholesome brand. And this slide actually contained um, images of coloring books that were produced for children by Dutch Boy Paint and also images of Disneyland. Um, Dutch Boy Paint actually sponsored Tomorrowland when it opened. And they spent a lot of time blaming the victim. So when pediatricians at Johns Hopkins started demonstrating the relationship between lead poisoning in children and lead paint, the lead companies couldn't exactly say that the cause wasn't lead paint. I mean, how else would all these kids be exposed? So what they said instead was the reason kids were being poisoned was because they lived in quote, unquote, slums, and they were cared for by uneducated parents who allowed their emotionally starved children to eat paint. And I actually had a letter here written by the chief lobbyist of a national lead association that said those exact words so fortunately science did prevail the second time around and the united states banned lead-based paint in 1978 in 1979 the national lead company which at the time was the largest paint company in the united states they made dutch boy paint they declared bankruptcy and in 1980 they reopened as nl industries and they are still around today dutch boy paint which was the largest selling paint in the United States at the time, was sold to another paint company you might have heard of called Sherwin-Williams. Sherwin-Williams still sells Dutch Boy paint. We originally had some screenshots of their websites which show that to this day, they have um, images of old lead paint advertisements on their website. They're not hiding their history, they're not disassociating themselves from their history. So where are we now in Connecticut? So this is, again, from the Department of Public Health. And you can see over the last 12 years, the number of cases of lead poisoning continues to decrease. Specifically, cases above 15 and 20 are becoming increasingly rare. What you will notice, however, is that cases between 5 and 10 are not making the same amount of progress. And this map shows the number of cases of lead poisoning in Connecticut by town. The larger the circle, the greater the number of cases. So you can see the most affected areas are Hartford, Waterbury, Manchester, Bridgeport, New Haven. This is a close-up of the greater Hartford area, so you can find the town you work in. And just to give you an idea of some high risk groups in Connecticut, um, children who live in older homes are at higher risk of lead poisoning, makes sense. Older homes have more lead paint. So this map shows the relationship between areas of older housing stock and lead poisoning. Darker green represents areas with older housing stock. Children of color in Connecticut are much more likely to have lead poisoning. African American children in Connecticut are twice as likely to be poisoned. Hispanic children are one and a half times more likely. And finally, children living in poverty in Connecticut are more likely to be poisoned. Areas with darker blue um, represent areas of higher poverty in the state. And obviously there is overlap between these three groups, but it's important to keep in mind as you evaluate your children. So I want to take a few minutes to talk about the effects of lead poisoning. Um, So oftentimes we get told by many providers that they don't worry about lead levels of 5 to 10 because you don't chelate until 45 and something about 5 to 10 just doesn't sound as dangerous as 20 or 25. Um, This is not the best way to think about lead poisoning, the research from the last 15 years clearly shows that there is no safe lead level in the blood and actually low lead levels are more dangerous to the brain than high lead levels. Lanpier was the first person to demonstrate the relationship between IQ loss and lead poisoning and he showed that at a lead level of 10, you basically lose eight IQ points. So eight IQ points is basically a standard deviation of IQ. So an entire standard deviation is enough to keep a child from graduating high school or attending college. So when you see just a 10, remember that child is suffering um, IQ deficit. And there have been multiple studies that are cited by the CDC that show the relationship between low lead levels and poor academic performance. We left this here if you guys are interested in looking at some of them. You will notice that one came out of Connecticut. This was an interesting study released in 2008. This group took children who were born between 1980 and 1984 who were part of the Baltimore study. They had documented blood levels of 10 when they were two and three years old, so their lead level never went above 10. They took these children when they reached young adulthood and did MRIs of their brains for six successive years between the ages of 20 and 26 and compared them with standardized um, young adults who were not lead poisoned. And this researcher was able to demonstrate that in the poisoned children, they actually had gray-white matter loss in their frontal lobe. So the result of poisoning when they were children still persisted into adulthood. And just to put a number on the cost, um, this is from the Economic Policy Institute in 2009. They looked at the 2000 to 2006 birth cohort. The median lead level in this birth cohort was seven and a half. And you can see that these kids, who are currently ages 11 to 17, can expect to lose $200 billion in future earnings and cost society millions of dollars in special education and also billions of dollars in lead-related crime. So, I hope you're convinced. So, what can you do as pediatricians? The most important thing you can do is screen. The second most important thing you can do is protect their development. Child Development Info Line, which is basically the same phone number as Birth to Three, is committed to helping all children who have lead levels of five and up. If you have any poisoned child, regardless of whether or not you have a developmental concern about the child, you can refer them to Child Development Info Line. And they will triage the child either into birth to three services or community services. They will handle the entire evaluation. All you need to do is call the number. And I'm going to turn it over to my partner, Dr. Hale. Good morning. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the
1: screening and what we need to do as general pediatricians. So in 2009, the Connecticut state mandate was updated. Um, and it, essentially changed the regulations to two annual screenings done between nine and 35 months of age. Most private pediatricians do them between at the 12 month and the 24 month well child check because it coincides with the anemia screening. The other group that they updated was if your child, if you have a child in your practice between 36 and 72 months that has not had a lead screen, we do recommend one screening. And it's actually the mandate. This is important for children who transfer into your practice who have incomplete or no medical records and no evidence of a lead screening prior. So why do we do this double annual um, screening? So in 1998, the CDC did a cost-benefit analysis, um, and they looked at areas of high risk. They defined high risk as prevalence of lead poisoning greater than 12% or greater than or equal to 27% of the housing stock built before 1950. Um, All others in low risk are screened with a questionnaire. If the questionnaire screens positive, then we recommend getting a lead level. So Connecticut. In 2015 um, we reviewed our census data and 30.8 percent of our housing was built before 1950 so that's greater than the 27 percent but remember lead paint was only was banned in 1978 and 71.6 percent of our housing in connecticut is built before 1978. so again we have really really old housing stock here in connecticut so we just um pulled some uh numbers from kind of the greater hartford area so you could see um, how truly impactful this old housing stock has on our lead. Um, if you look at the middle um, area, that's pre one thousand, nine hundred and fifty housing, and then if you look to the right, it's pre one thousand, nine hundred and seventy eight. So you can see a significant portion of the housing stock in Connecticut was built between one thousand, nine hundred and fifty and one thousand, nine hundred and seventy eight. Which means the two screenings prior to thirty-five months is mandatory, and this is why. So special populations, so other kids you need to think about. Um, as you know, in Connecticut, we have a lot of immigrant and refugee children. Um, they require special screening. They require screening upon arrival here into the United States. And that's because um, there are other lead risks outside of the United States that are different from our lead paint risk here. Um, frequently, uh, they use makeup that is not regulated. They use spices that <clears throat> that include um, lead. Glazes and paints on the pottery and earthenware that they eat and cook with contain lead. Um, Also, there are still six countries in the world that use lead paint, and those include Algeria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Myanmar, and North Korea. So again, these are different risks than here. These children need to be screened a second time, three to six months after they've arrived here. And that's for the same exposures here. Um, That's the lead paint. These kids frequently come when they live in lower income, deteriorating housing. So screening rates in Connecticut. As you can see, this is a graph from 1996 to 2014. In general, our screening rates have gone up and that's mostly in part to Dr. Slivka, so thank you very much. But we have a long way to go. Um, This map represents the single screening rate. So this is one screen between nine months and two years old. Um, The darker green represents a higher screening rate. We kind of zoomed into the greater Hartford area and again, the darker green is the 90 to 100% screening rate. The green of Hartford is 70 to 89%. Again, this is one single screen prior to the age of two, not the mandate. So if you look at this graph, this recommends, uh, represents the second screening rates. So the, the bar to the left is uh, the total children screened once by the age of two, and that's 82%. The middle line represents total one screen prior to the age of three, and that's 97%. The problem is the bar all the way to the right represents the two annual screenings prior to 35 months, and that's only 53%. So we do have a lot of places to go here in Connecticut. This map represents the second screening rates. Um, And again, I'm just gonna zoom in on the Greater Hartford area. Um, As you can see, the color of Hartford, that light green is 50 to 59% of the dual screening rates. Um, We have none of the dark green in the Greater Hartford area. Um, That pink, which kind of is the surrounding area of Hartford, is only 40 to 49%. So we really need to work on getting both of those screens done prior to 35 months. So how do you test? You have two options. You have a venous sample and a capillary sample. Um, the venous sample is is the gold standard. It is the true lead level. Um, the good thing is, is that the labs that, that draw the blood automatically report it to the state. The problem is, is you see these kids in clinic, they've gotten a bunch of shots, mom's been waiting forever, and they don't want to go to the lab. You give them a lab slip, you hope they go. So that's where a lot of the problems with the screen rates are. The other option is a capillary sample. The positives of this is you get an immediate um, answer. Um, the downside is is that you have to train your personnel. That we frequently see false positive results, and not all insurance companies um, reimburse for it. The reporting of the capillary sample also falls on your office, so all lead levels must be reported to DPH. Again. Anyone you send to the lab to get a venous sample, these are automatically reported. If you do capillaries in your office, they need to be reported by your office. And results greater than or equal to 10 need to be reported in 48 hours. This um, chart represents when to follow up an elevated capillary level with a venous level. This is very easily found on the DPH website. You can Google it. It's also in the handout that's in the back for you. Um, the thing to remember is that you know, you can't really trust a capillary level, so after talking to a lot of private offices, when they do capillary levels, they actually just hand the lab slip to the patient and suggest they go for the venous that day. It prevents, you know, losing these kids to follow up, which frequently happens, and then we actually have an answer of a true lead level. Risk assessment, I'm gonna pass
2: this over to Darlene. Good morning, I'm gonna talk about risk assessment. So all of our patients need to be evaluated between the ages of 6 and 72 months. It's a Connecticut State Guideline and the American Academy of Pediatric Recommendation. Things to ask. Was the home built before 1978? Do the children have pica? Do they eat unusual things? Do they put more things than usual in their mouth? Um, Are there families that work with... Car parts, airplane parts. We recently had a family who the dad worked at a um, shooting range and the child was being exposed to the dad's clothes and his hands when he came home from work. Are there playmates in the same housing? Are there siblings within the same home that have lead poisoning? Do they all go to grandma's house where they actually got the lead poisoning and not actually in their home? We did have a child recently of six months who came back positive for lead, and was only tested because the older sibling came back positive, positive. Um, and they actually wound up having the leaching of the lead from a pipe in their home, and so their water was positive. Again, we have a lot of people coming from other countries with spices, kitchen materials, objects that are not regulated. So, of course, education is key for our families. We spend a lot of time talking about never vacuuming, always wet wiping, um, never sweeping. It creates the dust which the children inhale. They need to be sure to block off any areas that might be defective. We recommend duct tape over peeling areas, plastic covers over windows, blocking the areas with the furniture. We talk about using substitute items for things that they've brought from other countries, changing out their pots, being careful with their jewelry, um, and any other toys they might have brought. So most recently, the emerging sources of lead have been found in electronics and toys. Things that are not meant for children are not tested for lead. So they come from other countries, they find their way into dollar stores, they find their way into the kids' hands, and kids are putting things like the parent's phone that they only have for games in their mouth, um, the iPad, all these things are broken. We also have kids coming from undeveloped countries who resend our electronic garbage to, and they're sent out to the garbage to retrieve parts, and so when they come here from the other country, they're positive. And again, when they come here, they're exposed to the lead paint um, and or the other products that we have. Oops, skip a slide. Okay, so treatment and management. So if you have a poisoned child, give us a call. We are a completely funded program through the DPH. We have dedicated clinic time to do an environmental history. It takes a good 20 to 30 minutes to talk about the dirt in their yard, what's in their kitchen, what have they brought from other countries, where are they going, where are they spending most of their time. We coordinate with the local health departments, Um, kids who are all led over 20, the health department's required to go out. We coordinate with Healthy Homes to help with this process and inspection and teaching in the home. We provide a lot of education, a lot of educational materials. We do a developmental surveillance, we refer to birth to three. Um, kids who have the lead over 20 are out automatically eligible for a birth to three services. Chelation for our kids who are over 45, and we communicate with providers every time we see a patient. So you always get a copy of our consult note. We also have had no child progress to chelation since we started with the program in 2015. Data prior to that is required um, IRB approval. We actually have had a couple of children with LEDs over 30, but have never gone to 45 during our time of providing education and assessment for them. So if you choose to do follow-up testing, this is the Connecticut DPH guidelines. Um, Again, those five to 10s are just as important as the kids who are 20s to 30s and close to chelation. So in summary, please be sure to do two lead tests by the age of 35 months, educate families about what to look for, what do they have, make sure all those capillary lead levels are being reported, and utilize the treatment centers. We have two within the state of Connecticut here at CCMC and one at Yale. Both of our numbers are here. We've got lots of handouts in the back, so we encourage everyone to give us a call if you have any questions or you have anybody to refer. Thank you.